710 ESPN presents The Experience, the Experience. with Lafern Cusack, where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of The Experience, Lafern Cusack. Lafern Cusack. Richard's Warriors is a mentorship program for young teenage men ages 14 to 15. They assign a hand-picked mentor, uh, picked by artistic director Richard Lawson, to worthy young men who have the potential and desire to live a successful, productive life, but do not have the guidance, financial ability, or access to the roadmap to get there. Using Richard's highly successful and proprietary professional development program, PDP, mentors will be supported through this teaching modality, empowering these young men to fearlessly identify their dreams and then help gain the clarity, discipline, and skill to begin the long, arduous journey to get there. They also focus on nurturing the potential and self-esteem in every young man while showing them how to give back to their peers without judgment. This is a year-long program using art to create change. For more information, you can go to wacotheatercenter.com for more information. wacotheatercenter.com Concerned Black Men of Los Angeles seeks to unite African-American men to support and empower youth and advocate for the betterment of our communities. As part of of their mentorship, they provide community leadership opportunities and encourage education as a first priority. For more information, you can go to their website at cbmla.org. Concerned Black Men of Los Angeles, cbmla.org. The experience never stops. Never stops on your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laverne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. I'm speaking with Ron Turner and Dominique Jefferson. Thank you so much for joining me. This is so exciting. No so uh, just tell me yeah. a little bit about Tina's Angels and Richard's Warriors. They're, they're a good program. Yeah, they help. They help me a lot. Like they try to open my horizons a lot. Like they take us to art museums. Um, they talk about um, the current circumstances with the whole George Floyd and the virus, and like what it means to be a black man in America. Like how you have to work really hard to just to uh, make it. But they try to make make it to where we're aware of our circumstances currently, and they try to make our personalities bigger than what we already have. Try to make us better people. And Dominic, can you tell us how you guys found the program? Yes, uh, Karan just graduated this June uh, from KIPP, KIPP Academy of Opportunity. And KIPP has a number of charter schools, I think, throughout the country. They definitely have a lot in Los Angeles. And at the KIPP that he attends, they had uh, Richard's Warriors slash Tina's Angels set up there. So they were set up and ready and willing to just accept students that wanted to apply. And so Karan applied to it. I mentioned to him the, you know, from what I was able to research from the program, the benefits that come with it, how this I think would be a great opportunity for him. And he went ahead and he, he signed up with them. And since then he's been, um, from what I hear, performing really well in the program. Oh, that's great. Okay, so with the programs, you guys go to different uh, creative places and you're introduced to to new things. Yes. What were some of the top things that you were introduced to? I gotta say the art. It was really new. I've I've seen pictures of like art. The people at my school who like draw and they have they even have like little art exhibits in my school. But the stuff that they showed me was like totally new. It was something I've never seen before. How that- and it was just cool to see all the different paintings and the wall and they all have meanings to it too. They have oh right right it it you can express yourself in different ways or when you look at a piece of artwork it it can make you feel a certain way and it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're uh, going to Verbum Day High School. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. 
So you. you are you also play basketball. So you're a scholar athlete, which is great for Vernon uh-huh. Day High School. Tell us how you got into basketball and why you like like it so much. Uh, I started playing basketball when I was around like six or seven. Because before I wanted to play football, because my dad he he likes he likes the Cowboys and like what he, the t- he just wanted me to play. Football. <laughs> <laughs> he was a big Cowboy fan. <laughs> Yeah, and then I went to the park. I went to Van Ness and I saw people playing, and I wanted to give it a try. And I signed up. My first coach was Coach Johnny. His name was Coach Johnny. He was a really good first coach. Like I, I really needed him to be my like my first coach. I wouldn't have have it any other way because he preached like the fundamentals. He was teaching fundamentals like defense, like stand. He he was just all about fundamentals, and he showed the fundamentals. And my second my second year there, I started playing with Coach Billy. He also coaches at Van Ness, and like he. I, I played with him for like a few years and he's been like a big part of basketball for me. Like he taught me a lot and certain things I wouldn't, I wouldn't know if I, if I didn't play with him, if I didn't play under him. Like he was, a, he was a really good coach. A lot of uh, the athletes that I interview, they talk about how much of a mentor their coaches are to them. Dominic, can you talk about that in regards to Karan? Yes, many of his coaches have been in different ways mentors, a mentor to Quran. Um, his first coach, Coach Johnny, that he talked about, uh, definitely taught him fundamentals. I think he sparked in Quran being able to be more aggressive, just in total, and especially on the court. He came across Coach Billy as he started getting older. And so, whereas with Coach Johnny helped him more about the fundamentals of basketball, Coach Billy was able to more so mentor Karan in terms of his character as it relates to just growing up as a boy, especially in a single mom household, and also his character as it relates to playing basketball and sportsmanship and being a team member and in leadership too. So, Definitely Coach Billy has helped with that. Uh, His coaches at KIPP also were able to help him hone in on when it comes to his personality and character and like in terms of leadership, where he could be better or how he can improve. Definitely at this point, he's 13. So there's a lot of things going on with him physically, socially, so many different changes that he's going through. And so these coaches that, are in the space of his life where he's doing something that he really enjoys doing, I think it's a sweet spot because they also take that and use that to help develop him, you know, his character and and help push him where he could be greater. But also as a mother, I can imagine, well, well, I'm a mother too, so what you do also aids in that development. Yes, I'd like to think so. I mean, I am a returning student myself. I'm a returning full-time student. And so it's what's important to me is at this point in my life, definitely is, is not only modeling, but also encouraging Quran to realize his potential, know who he is, and always try to live life in a way that represents what he feels he deserves based on how he knows himself. I always push him to go hard. He knows that being a student athlete requires good grades. So in my home, there's no, there's nothing beyond the B average, really an A average I push for. But prior to COVID, he was pushing like a 3.7 GPA. Um, The changes in remote learning, it kind of, uh, brought a little bit brought it a little bit down but he knows that academics are just as important and definitely through these mentorship programs richard's warriors he's a part of another one concerned black men they have helped to introduce him and expose him to like trips field trips and activities that expose him to career life um to kind of get him going in that direction of what what's my life going to be like after high school how am i going to be as a as a, a black man that in addition to me with that go hard uh, mentality i think has done a lot with him already having it ingrained in his mind like i have to be a good student academically 
so that that's not like any barriers to him being in, um, being able to play basketball. Right, right. And Karan, can you talk about your experience, how you're f- feeling, you know, graduating and going into high school now? I'm happy to go to Bourbon Day. Everywhere I go and I talk to people, they always say high school is going to be one of, one of your best years behind college. And I'm just happy to, I'm happy to um, go to high school, but... I didn't like how like my eighth grade year ended because we were supposed to graduate on stage and it was supposed to be like a, a a celebration, and we didn't get to have it because of COVID. And then for the ninth grade part of it, I'm not even sure I'm gonna even be able to have like a a normal ninth grade year because I'm gonna have to do distance learning mm. for most of for most of the whole year unless they come up with a, a vaccine to end it, but. I can't wait to start high school. Yeah, that is kind of difficult. You know, my nephew graduated from high school and he was he was pretty sad as well. How are you navigating through that sadness? It's, I try to stay away from going big places. I'll, I'll always wear a mask when I leave. I try to just like stay safe. So I, I won't catch the virus. Yeah. To try to follow the guidelines. Yes. And Karan, can you talk about how, you know, in the whole state of, you know, protests happening now and you being such a great leader and a scholar athlete, how are you as a young African-American leader navigating through this uprising? Well, I've been talking to my mom a lot about what's been going on. I'm also my grandfather. We were watching documentaries and things about like voting and just trying to just have discussions about it. I'm getting more. I'm getting more knowledge on what's what's going on and things things of that nature. But it's it's tough because no, nobody nobody said it has to be killed like that that brutally. No man, because if we're all made equal, nobody should be down killed like that. That's not right. Dominic, how how are you navigating as well with the the conversations? The protests and and all the uprisings and and what served as the source to it. Uh, Man, just talking to my son more, as he said, we watch documentaries. We have discussions. I talk to him about how important it is uh, to, to be active, not only as a, a, a voter for the presidential elections, but you also should be engaged, yeah, engaged locally. That's where it starts. I talked to him about, uh, it, it's weird, we, it's like a, a dual conversation that takes place, one where I, you know, try to encourage him and empower him um, to, to stand strong in his identity as a Black young boy growing to be a a young black man to never feel like white supremacy is real. And at least in his world, because he needs to not ever feel inferior as a young black boy. So I try to encourage him down that path of being proud where he is, but at the same time, having to talk to him about the realities of the world and the fact that what I'm trying to encourage you to be, the world may not see you as that way or certain pieces of the world may not see you that way. And uh, just trying to strike a balance. With me, it's all about balance. I want him to have a balanced understanding of who he is, yet what's going on against him and people of his kind. Also, where, as a member of his community, what he can do to make changes to not be a statistic. You know, I think as much as uh, the society and institutions need to help us, we also have to help ourselves. So it, it's a bit of a doozy because I'm, I'm talking to him about things that can kind of like contrast, but I feel like it's important for him to know about that duality and, and just make sense of it in such a way that he's living his life right and reaching his goals. So it, it, it's a, a, a tightrope walking act sometimes, it feels. Yes, absolutely. And then there's the part where you're this great athlete, right? And so you're going to be on the court as well as, you know, the expectations of, you know, you getting great grades and balancing all of that. Uh, There's a certain level of leadership that goes along with that. And how do you think that you'll navigate that? It's it's a balance. I think I could um, 
put like you could just I, I could just do my work, take care of work in class, make sure I'm studying for tests and staying organized with my work so I don't fall behind anything. And then I could just it all opens up from there because if I stay on task or school I have a lot more time for basketball. I don't have to, I won't have to put in as much work when I get home just to like study and catch up with stuff. I could just focus on getting better. Yeah. We talk about how, we talk about how when you're an athlete you have to balance balance it all you know you you have to stay stick with your grades you have to uh go to practice you you then you have games and you're traveling and there's so much skills that is required of a scholar athlete but i think like you when you get into the like the world of the corporate world you can really tell who's who has had those leadership skills who has had who has been an athlete a scholar athlete and those type of skills are learned both on and off the court yeah you learn you learn as you go you pick up things off the court like if you if you involve yourself in like the community and like you get involved in programs they'll teach you certain things that will help you become a better person and They'll help be a better leader, and like they'll help you influence others. And then when you're on the court, it's like you have to put yourself out there, try to try to get extra work in, and it's just about learning and taking what you get, and trying to make it make the best out of it. Yeah, uh, one thing that I say to myself is like, you can't expect to already know what you don't know. And that that's mm-hmm. that's difficult. Like, you know, you you get a job and you're like, okay, I should I should already know this job, and you ta- you're trying to tackle it, but it's like, it's all like the experience. It's the experience mm-hmm. of, of going through it. And I'm so proud. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud to have you on the show and Karan telling your story and how uh, Richard's Warriors has helped you and your mother. You guys are so strong and full of strength, and I, I'm so thankful. Thank you for sharing Thank your story. You. Well, uh, Absolutely. I definitely have to have you back when you start Verbum Day and uh, hopefully I come see some of your games as well. Absolutely. We'll definitely be in touch and update you. And Karan, if you want to tell someone who is listening to this, you know, that's transferring from middle school to high school and wants to be a scholar athlete like yourself, what advice would you give them? I'll tell them to keep, that, keep their head up. Work hard this summer because it's going to get much more intense than middle school. But stay stay confident and keep putting in the work. And don't and like still still like read a book every now and then so you won't forget everything. Yes. <laughs> and Dominique, do you have uh, any uh, gifts of knowledge you could share to parents out there? Uh, same as him. Keep your head up. For me, I look up to role models. I research. You know families or, or people that uh, I aspire to be like, or through my, through my continuous uh, journey for self-development, I look up to people and, and I study people. And so self-development is definitely one thing and it's always ongoing. You always want to try to better yourself. It never stops. Mm-hmm. Keep your head up, pray, meditate, try to be as healthy as you can. Journaling helps. And it's just so much going on right now with the protests and COVID. And so a lot of things have happened that have kind of knocked families off of their track. But um, just keep keep on trucking, keep on trucking. And it it definitely gets better. It definitely gets better. Well, I thank you guys for sharing your time and your love for one another and love for education and sports. It's truly an honor to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're honored, too. All right. And we'll be looking out for you, Karan, on the basketball court. Okay, thank you. This is 710 ESPN. Verbum Day High School is a Catholic Jesuit high school located in Los Angeles. The school provides its all-male student body a rigorous college prep curriculum that is complemented by a unique corporate work-study program. Verbum Day maintains its 100% college acceptance rate through the hard work of the young men who are empowered and strengthened by a demanding and nurturing environment, strong sense of brotherhood, and a deep sense of God's presence and love in their lives. Verbum Day young men believe they will change the world, and they will.
the experience on 710 ESPN continues. Back to Laferne Cusack. Ogechi Musa is a Nigerian-American conscious storyteller. She writes, directs, and self-produces untold stories through her platform as the CEO and founder of Raw Productions. These stories delve into social issues that feature marginalized communities in lead roles. Her filmmaker mission is to evoke empathy by increasing VIPOC representation in front and behind of the screen. And Shiana Lyons grew up acting and singing in Boston before expanding to writing and producing projects while living in New York City. Now in L.A., she and her husband, Federico, formed Crazy Magic Media to create music and films. With a history of social and political activism, she is especially drawn to conscious storytelling with an emphasis on diverse voices. A lifelong spiritualist, Shiana has recently made public her energy and sound healing work. Authentic allyship versus performative allyship, the plight of Black women in America, and so much more. You don't want to miss this conversation. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. If you have a moment, let me sing your song, a song. Still gold when the trees still bore fruit and the rivers ran blue. Tell us about your background. Uh, my name is Ogechi Musa, and I am a Nigerian American conscious storyteller. I'm the CEO and founder of Raw Productions, and with my production company, my aim, my mission, my everything is to evoke empathy by increasing representation um, on the screen and behind the screen. Um, it's definitely primarily promoting Black voices. That is the most underheard voice of America. And as we all know now more than ever, um, it is most important to show our images share our stories and I have an interesting path to this my current state and my current mission just because I um yeah I have a lot of personal experience with being oppressed and having to fight that and combat that so I feel like my life work is just to reflect what I know um and reflect your story as well to save the freaking world (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) Shiana I'm Shiana Lyons. I'm a multi-hyphenate, also a mom. (laughs) I'm a singer, actor, writer. Uh, These days, I'm partnered a lot with my husband, uh, Federico Gonzalez (laughs) Runebaum. And we do writing and we do music. And um, I use sound in other ways as well, Sound, uh, sound healing, I guess. I have a history of political, social political activism as well. And re-entered acting really with Ogechi's short second film, her short film, uh, last fall. I re-entered because my I have teenage daughters at an age now where, you know, I felt I could do more um auditioning and that kind of thing. When we could back when we could audition. And I was very picky about what I wanted to do in terms of I really want to do work that's important that has a consciousness um, that can elevate. So was thrilled to get that, that part in Ogechi's amazing film uh, that started me acting again. And Shiana, you told me about Ogechi. She spoke the world of you. And I was so excited to, to have the opportunity to interview you and meet you along with Shiana. And I just want to know, like, how, how were you raised? Tell us about your background. So as I was saying, um, my parents are Nigerian immigrants, and I was raised in um, a, a household with two different Nigerian cultures, the Igbo culture and the Hausa culture, which, which is just very rare. If you know any Nigerian and you say that, it's like, what's going on? Um, it's non-existent because those cultures contrast, um, and there are religious wars in Nigeria with those two cultures um, and beliefs and whatnot. So they met here, but that also created this interesting dynamic in the house, just because uh, my dad's culture, it was heavy on gender roles. 
And my mom was specifically raised in a certain way from her grandfather, from her uh, father, to be independent, to be herself, to break down any type of role because she's going to succeed no matter what if you put in hard work. So there is always this heavy, um, heavy upbringing and heavy, I guess, just bringing. Yeah, just there's a heavy, I guess, influence of hard work, dedication and getting your education. So that was that was what everything was about. You're going to go to school. You're going to go to college. You're going to be a doctor, lawyer or blank. (laughs) Actually, those were the main two. For most of my siblings, that's what we started um, really studying. And that was the case for me as well. So strict. To an extent, a lot, lot of work ethic. I've worked ethic due to um, my upbringing. So that kind of adds to my persistency and reluctancy to give up on projects because that's just always done. Um, and I complete and I finish due to that very, I would say, militant uh, to a degree based off of my father's background, um, background, but also heavily, I guess, influenced by empathy. My mom is incredibly empathetic, and she's an empath to the core. I am as well. So we had two very traditionally contrasting ways of upbringing um, a child, and doing it in America was another huge challenge. My parents had no idea they were going to encounter. And to this day, my mom says one of her regrets is not bringing us home more and raising us in America. Yeah, it's a... yeah, we talked about that the other day, actually. Um, and I interviewed her a while ago, probably a couple of years ago when I was at BC for my uh, psychology and gender class. And I did a huge interview on my mom and she said that and it, it really hit home just because she realized how difficult life is simply by our color. So she's like, I gave you that. That's that's what we are. Like, how can we how can we adjust that? You can't adjust that. How can you modify? How can you combat that? It, it's literally your skin. And she didn't encounter that um, as covertly in Nigeria. Yes, there's colorism. And she has light skin privilege, as we know. You know, she's, she's lighter. My dad's darker. Complete opposite of the spectrum as well. Um, I'm right in the middle. But they that also brought interesting lessons. You know, it's just very, I had a, yeah, I had a lot of, um, I guess just diverse upbringing and them realizing their identity in America and their children's identity. So we always say that the older, my older brothers, because um, it's two brothers first and then it's three daughters, we had different types of upbringings. That's what we always say. It, it really changed when it came to us, the daughters. Um, and you can just see that with our personalities. We can see that we're, um, we were comfortable to explore and travel due to them warming up and adjusting and kind of reforming their own ways and their mentality. They they had to decolonize their mentality in order to raise us as Black children in America, which was, uh, I mean, they, yeah, they can go on, I can go on and on, yes. but I think that's the core of, of the upbringing. Yeah. Shiana, and how were you raised? I was raised... Um, in the suburbs of Boston, my parents had very different uh, backgrounds, but were both um, Catholic, raised Catholic. Um, but we didn't have a lot of money. And I lived in a town where um, I lived in the section of town where uh, a lot of my neighbors and people around me were immigrants. And for example, I I taught English as a second language in just elementary school to help the teachers with the kids who were, you know, coming and not didn't have a really good handle on English, for example. So for where I came from, and Ogechi's a fellow New Englander, so she knows there's not, you know, New England is pretty segregated, I'm sad to say. I know. Yeah. But within where I was, first of all, I wasn't raised by racist parents, thank God. But, you know, that, but I was raised by a very empathetic mother also, so we have that, that in common as well. Um, but I will say that just listening to you talk, Ogechi, and there's one thing I really wanted to mention about diversity I was telling the firm because uh, just personally the other day, I did this workshop recently on, um, it's becoming very popular now, it's called Family Constellations, it's popular in psychology. Mm-hmm. 
It's about healing the systems, you know, within a family. Um, but the woman that I that I did this with, she's in England. And uh, years and years ago, I learned a form of chanting that I do through her, um, which is a Tibetan form of chanting, which I've done forever as a, like a personal practice. But recently, I've begun to use it in my you know music and put it out there a bit. But I did this workshop with her just last weekend, and you know. It's about healing the ancestors. And, you know, not only are we raised, we all know, in a system of racism, especially, you know, countries that were founded that way, like like our own. But we're, I believe, we're taking energetically the traumas of our ancestors, you know, quite literally, like whether it's you want to say it's genetic or but it's in our fields, you know, and. I believe, this is my personal opinion, humble opinion here, but I believe this virus happened just before the kickoff of this, you know, renewal of Black Lives Matter, because I don't believe we're going to be allowed to go forward till we finally purge this, you know, energetically, systemically. It it can't be just another... Uh, movement that moves things forward a bit and then we slide back into old ways or we slide back into complacency. I think that it's almost as if (laughs) we're being made to be alone with our own energy and then go out into the world and, and, you know, and protest and say, and then come back to our own energy. And it's like, we have to deal with it ourselves as well, you know, like personally. So there's that. Um, uh, Anyway, so in, in all the stories that I heard on this call, I could relate in some way to people's stories. You know, for example, I know my again, my great grandfather was killed uh, Irish, killed for not paying his taxes by British soldiers at his door in front of his kids. Right. So I know that that's one of my that I can you know, I carry that just like the, the door tax or the I, roof tax. I don't know what kind of tax it was, but I guess they were poor and, you know, but to be shot in front of, you know, the family like that, for sure, helped me understand a lot about my dad and his dad and what Mm -hmm. I knew of his family. Um, Most of them died young, so I didn't know many of them, but, um, and my dad died at 54, but, you know, you, you learn these things and it helps inform you that we, we all have something um, but this, you know, when it comes to race, we're dealing with a whole system that's so in- deeply embedded. So it's about really, it's about a kind of revolution. And Ogechi, yeah. how, how did you come upon Shiana and putting her in one of your uh, films? Yeah, it was um, probably one of the greatest things that's happened because Shiana, I appreciate you deeply. <laughs> Um, and you really helped me complete my film, and you've been so supportive, and you are an authentic ally. Um, and I hadn't, and I haven't encountered two true allies, so I really appreciate you. Can yeah. you describe an authentic ally for those that may not yeah. know? Okay, yeah, that's great. Um, authentic ally. So sometimes there's a graph. There's There are different adjectives. There are different ways that I can really... Um, but you know, with just like the description, but I feel like it's also a feeling it's, it's that genuine <laughs> feeling, you know, it's like, I know you're posting that out of nowhere. That's performative. You are doing that because you got called out. I know that you are going to be going to these protests and having a, a selfie of your sign. I see that. I feel that. And I'm energy based as well. Um, so it's for me personally, it's, it's a feeling. And the fact that I have so many people in my life who did not support, who were not genuine when I started years ago. That's how I personally am like, wow, I see the shit. But I don't want to also kind of demonize that because it's, it's not that we want change, right? We, we want people to come on board, but it's the way that you do it. You know, right. it's the way it's, are you teachable? You know, it's being able to be teachable. Having mm-hmm. that open mind, being ready to just really decolonize your mind. It's the revolution is not going to be televised because it starts here in your mind. And that's huge. And I just feel like there's so many people who just don't get that. Because if you're waking up yesterday, okay, you started living yesterday? Like, what's going on? So 
and I don't want to, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to get too into it, but um, there are ways that are more authentic than others. And that would be, love it, love the kids. And <laughs> that would be really, really, really genuine support. And that's hard to, I can go through a list, you know what I'm saying? There's, I've actually have been using my um, Instagram platform to address all of this as well. Um, but it's really genuinely supporting the um, BIPOC. Black indigenous people of color right now, black period. You know, that's what needs to happen. It's realizing and accepting your privilege. Accept it. Identify it. Say it. You're privileged because then you can use your privilege to help others. It's, mm-hmm. it's a balance act. And if you don't know where you are on that scale and you're denying that part of the scale, then then what's, we're not really going to be able to even it out. We're really not going to be able to empower the people that need it because you're in denial. Um, I feel like we are really, a lot of people have been living in an illusion um, and it's been blissful, you know, ignorance is bliss, as they say. And I was a part of that illusion at most, I feel like most of my life. I'm not going to lie. I was tokenized. I went to PWIs. I, I had to really look within. Um, and when I started actually creating friction, writing friction, I started doing the research. I'm like, I'm going to, this is going to be about police brutality. So I started doing the research. I started opening up my eyes and seeing my mom suffer. She's a Nigerian immigrant and she is suffering as a black woman. So it's, it's really opening up your mind and your eyes because mm-hmm. that's been the case. She's yes. been suffering, you know? So it's, it's a matter of being open to, to decolonizing your mind. And that, that can be a lot of different ways. Real education, reading, um, supporting black artists, supporting black images. There's a whole bunch of ways. I want to like just divert to um, calling out my Instagram page just because we, we do have posts that break down the language, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling. Authenticity is, it's a feeling and we know it and try to be as genuine as possible. And that's looking within. That's truly looking within. Absolutely. That's my, and I really, I feel like Tiana should also speak on this because she is an authentic ally. And I feel like it's important to, to educate your own because that's, that's, that's the best way right now. It truly is. You know exactly what you've done. You know how you've accepted your privilege. You know what steps you took to be an authentic ally. So I feel like those are the leaders we need more of is leading their own out of the dark. And, you know, you can always lead a horse to water. We can't force them to drink. But I feel like you are the perfect person to lead the horse to the water is <laughs> someone who is of that breed. So, yeah, I want, I, I just went off, but yeah, <laughs> no, I hope it answered off. the question. I'm so passionate, and I'm like, I gotta like hone it in sometimes. I, no, I, don't ever hone it in. Don't ever. It. It's, it's like stream of consciousness, and you got Gil Scott Heron in there. It's like the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time. Going back to college, I went to Brandeis, also in, in Boston, um, and I just studied, you know women's studies I studied some of my classes were called um blacks and Jews for example because Brandeis is a Jewish university just really um I ended up with a major in sociology but that was because I had the most credits in sociology but I I wanted to study everything um and you know um Laferne knows I don't know if you know the Sogechi but when I moved to New York from Boston I never knew either of my uh, biological grandfathers, so I adopted a black grandfather, and he's the only grandfather I ever had. Um, deeply, deeply close family. He just died a couple of years ago at 96, um, served in a segregated World War II, and um, mm-hmm. I mean, they became, you know, he became part of my family. Um, mm-hmm. My dad had already passed, but brought him home to my mom and my um, sisters and anyway so I got a very I got like a, the young younger me but the older younger me got a whole look at um, mm-hmm. like he always said we're, <laughs> we're almost 50 years difference and we're from completely different worlds but I've never met someone so alike he used to say to me so mm-hmm. there's something about people just connecting beyond skin color too but I don't advocate being colorblind to be you know, you have to recognize what we're living in. But I did get sort of taken into a family where I learned a lot from that experience as well. He was raised in New Jersey, moved to New York, and just was the greatest thing in the world when Obama was elected 
for us because he he kept saying in you know I campaigned for him and he kept saying, "Honey, it's not, it's never going to happen." It's not no, happen. I was like, "Never going to." But then when he won, when he won, I, I was in tears because I'm like, "Oh my God, they're going to kill him!" I know. You know what? Response. I'm like, "Oh my God!" <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We, I think we all thought that. So, but it was wonderful to see that for him and to see that change can happen. But in terms of being an ally, I think it's really important. Obviously, everyone has to do this work, but I, there's this quote going around. It's better to show up imperfectly and open to change than not to show up at all. You know, we don't want people to be, to feel, cause I think, you know, you become aware on an individual level, like, Oh yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Like, my younger daughter posted something the other day. I love that the kids are posting things, that, all these things. I can't keep up with Instagram most of the time. But it <laughs> was, um, she posted something, um, you know, Sophia Lippert, that said, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, or, uh, what was it? Sorry. Um, childhood, what do you call them? Nursery rhymes. You didn't know were racist. That's mm-hmm. what it was Mm-hmm. and things and you know these kids are lucky in a way they have social media because they can get that awareness at a much younger level but I think what happens for people in I mean I think I've raised good allies because you know they've been raised um also they're they're in the they're half latin you know they're latina girls my daughters but you know kids today in general it's just that evolution I think I have so much faith in this generation to bring us yeah. you know no, to a new that's- place that's what I was saying. It's like, mm-hmm. this is the first time I I feel that the younger generation, there's going to be new leaders that are actively in the conversations to make valuable change, to be leaders in our community. I was so much in despair by what has been happening, but then so happy that I see these new leaders and Ogechi, you're so you're you're one of them and I'm just like oh my gosh yes <laughs> let's talk with her let's see you know it's it's inspiring thank you yeah I would like to I would like to just interject if I could and ask Ogechi who inspired friction because I know it's based it's based on a true story and it's amazing to me how it's like a prophecy. <laughs> I mean, these things have been going on forever, but you actually mm-hmm. and you filmed, you know, protest movements. I wanted to ask you, were those actual, um, you know, what's the um, Wall Street movement I can't think of right now? Were you filming? Occupy? Yeah, Occupy demonstrations or were you? It was, it was actually, great question. Um, it was actually BLM. And a lot of what I shot afterwards so I, I shot it, I wrote it in 2013, and the inspiration has been, there are so many different factors, and a core inspiration is my mom, um, Signet, the artist who actually brought all the artists together. Initially, like, she was the one who was like, let's make some piece of art to reflect the times. I'm trying to put out um, artwork for my, my music, and her music is protest art. So I'm listening to her music. It's my year off of school at BC, and I'm in Boston, and it's literally, I'm in my basement apartment, and I remember that feeling that I had. I had already written most of it and started shooting it. Um, The feeling that I had when George Zimmerman, it was George Zimmerman not being indicted that was this intense fire that got it through four years later. So the initial spark was Signif, because Signif said, let's come together, listen to this music. So art, it's all this collective art, as well as listening to the music, knowing my my whole situation as a Black woman in America, watching my mom as a Black mom in America suffering from the unknown of where her son is. Um, That unknown, I would see haunt her. It started to haunt me. I'm an empath, so I was feeling it all. I was I was having nightmares about it. I was it was it was all so real, and I realized I had been in denial. I've been denial. I, I, I woke up and I'm, I'm black. Like, I, re, I feel like I literally said that um, in 2013. So it was, it really, it, it's a lot. It's a lot that inspired fiction, um, but I had to finish it. So the fuel was uh, Trayvon Martin, um, George Zimmerman not being indicted, not being convicted, yeah. just getting released. And that kind of made me really continue because I was mm-hmm. a year off of school and then I went back. 
while I went, when I went back, I already had shot probably like 50%. And then I kept shooting more. So my last year um, as a senior at BC, I was shooting friction. So a lot of that footage you'll see at the BC campus. My bad, BC. I emailed you. You said no. I said whatever. You know, it's stuff like that where I'm like, no, I'm going to make this. Like, this mm-hmm. needs to be made because I really, initially it was dystopia, right? Distant reality. It, it's not, so there's so many factors that I would like still to see manifest um, just based off the organizational structures that I did present with the revolution in the film. Um, and also, it's, it's an idea of straying away from just one option of how to um, have this community ruling, you know, and which is we don't want the cops. We, we don't. We literally actually want them out. You know, oh, you're not going to do it that legal way. Okay, we're so frustrated. We're going to do it this way. Yes, that other way, the alternative way was a violent path, but it really reflected more. It reflected that deep, just, ah, just uh, that deep disappointment with the system and seeing how it failed. And Shiana, when you said COVID earlier about how that is kind of like this huge, like, ignition, it truly is because I feel like COVID really showed all of us how the system failed. It made it so illegitimate. It's like, this is not a legitimate system. Hello? We cannot (laughs) say it is anymore. So COVID, that's a huge point. I realized that I'm like, you know what? It's COVID. This time around, COVID really just unveiled. You can't deny it. You know, you were defunding healthcare. You don't have the mask. Where did that go? What are the, are the cops going to fight COVID? Like, are the cops feeding the homeless? There's so much that COVID did. And I feel like that's a huge point that you made earlier. Um, and that's what really, really just brought this back. And we're not, you're right. We're not, it's, it's not going anywhere until yeah. we, until we handle this and address it. I feel the same way. It's like you, there had, what has been happening is, um, hasn't been working. And we, as human beings, continually go with what is not working. And then what's not working, Mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, then they change it, but it's still not working. So there had to be a major overhaul of of the system that is broken. And one thing... one thing that I feel is like, okay, we, as a black woman, as an African-American person, we've been saying this isn't working for a long time, but yeah. now that people not of color are stepping up and saying, hey, wait a second, this is wrong. Now it's legitimate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which is great, but it took us to see Mm -hmm. a a man's spirit leave his body, you know, on the Mm -hmm. news to make people aware. And I think because of COVID, more people are in their house watching the news and and they saw it. And Mm -hmm. that's that's true, too. But I think you brought up you brought up a good point that. It's nothing new. It's just that cell phones have also captured, you know, what's been going on for so long when it's when you're there's always a way to deny it. Sometimes even when we have the the footage, but when you're, you know, the overwhelming majority of people, when they see that footage played are going to say, oh, my God. And But to treat it like an isolated incident is insane. You know, like, I mean, I'm sure Ogechi could talk about how, you know, the whole police establishment was founded. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly, and that the police. I mean, it when we first got here, or I guess for the first 350 years or so of America, there was no police, right? No police, and all of a sudden, the 13th Amendment. Okay, black people are free. We need a way to still have this free labor. So that's when policing was birthed, and it it wasn't even initially called policing. There were slave catchers. So the whole system, the core of it. It's, it's not even broken. It's completely messed up. But it's the, the system is wrong um, because of where it was birthed from. Because everyone before today, before maybe a month ago, people would really love to say, why are you still talking about slavery? Listen, slavery is a past chapter of this country. Are you reading a book 
and you're not going to read chapter zero to 10. And then you right. can hop in and 12 and be like, that doesn't matter before. No, that affects everything that's happening right now and in the future chapter. So don't ignore that. We need to learn from that. And honestly, it's just so, it seems simple, you know, but it's, that's why I always go back to decolonizing the mind because the reason we were all saying that, I heard Black people say that to me and I'm like, uh, it's it's the sheet mentality, um, and it's true systemic racism. This is what the whole system is supposed to do. It's supposed to control how we're thinking, control how we're living, um, as we saw as we're still seeing with COVID. And it's the people are starting to realize that we gotta have some level of control because the ones who have been writing the book, it's not our story. It's not our story. Um, and I think you're completely right, Laverne. Um, Black women have been the, on the forefront. They're like the invisible force in front for since forever. You know, they inspired Malcolm X. There was so many people that like just influenced all the leaders we know today. They were influenced by Black women. And this erasure culture is so it's just like textbook for systemic racism. It's textbook. It's like a pedagogy of oppression. Like that's that's a huge thing I've always experienced. It's like you're oppressed and you feel like you have to, you know, adapt this behavior and do that to that person to make you feel better. You think that you're combating the person who's pressing that down by pushing it that way? No, that's not the case. And that's what's done to black women. Well, can you talk um, and, about that? Can you talk about the yeah. oppression of black women? And, you, you know, there's now a... Uh, on Twitter, that's trending, you know, they're saying, you know, the the black women have been oppressed mm-hmm. for so long and right. people are like, OK, well, all uh, all uh, black lives matters. Now you're breaking it down to women. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that that's the core of systemic racism. That's the core of it. And not realizing you're still enslaved you're you're still believing that you're woman that you and anyone who identifies with women you got to let that go people are so misogynistic and they hold on to these traditional values and traditional mindsets that don't make sense I feel like my parents are a really good example of this um just because they were we used to call it Americanized now I'm like that's not the right term to use um they, they decolonized you know, they, they decolonize their mind and they realize that, no, gender roles is not necessarily okay. You know, that's not necessarily how we should raise our daughters. No, that's how we raise them here is how they're going to act out there and allow certain behaviors onto them. So I feel like that is the core of systemic racism because for so long, since slavery, even in certain African cultures, there's this whole mentality of oppressing women, of being these roles, these gender roles. So that is the core of systemic racism is gender roles. And who's at the top of that ladder? A white um, man. So it's it's really breaking it down to the core that we are our roles. You need to accept all of our roles and also visibility because visibility is the precursor to accountability. So if you're not seeing Black women, if you're not seeing Black trans women, if you're not seeing and hearing, then we're going to still fuel the systemic racism structure because that is what drives it. So it's, it's just realizing that that's the problem because that's what they've written. They have written, oppress your woman. Like that is, that's literally, uh, there's so many different books as well as to like how to uh, control a slave, how to, you know, how to oppress effectively I keep seeing it I'm like they've literally written this down and you're doing those behaviors so it's really a matter of misogyny um and fragile masculinity because when you're telling any man especially a black man that you have to protect or that you have to look out for your own it's, it's imposing something that they need to do so it's it's really unfortunately an instinct is to Go back. It's retract. Right. You're telling me that I'm going to do the opposite thing. We're all children, honestly. Like our inner <laughs> children are full grown, and it's just it's really all in the mind as well. Because once you realize that, it's going to take work to step back from that listening to that inner child. Like, no, you're trying to tell me what to do. Nope, I'm going to do this, and that's mom problems. You know, it goes it goes so deep psychologically um, that it it's not helping anyone. Like, it's not helping anyone. Why are we continuing it? 
white man's still in charge. You know, it's like we are doing exactly what is fueling this structure. So it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to really debunk this because it's going to take, it's going to take the mentality of someone to really unwire that, to really decondition. We're going to bring it forth. We're going to let you know, you see it everywhere. Black women are, so they're leading this, but they're yes. also the most victimized. They're also, the, all the stats are there. Um, and it's just sad because there's a certain level of fragile masculine, uh, masculinity that is really inhibiting our growth as, as a people. Yeah, uh, I, I hear you. And one thing I was sharing with Shiana is that I think mm-hmm. that Black women are going to change, (laughs) change the world. They're leading it. They're leading the charge and they're changing it. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what it's all about, but that that's just the feeling that I have. There's so many Mm -hmm. people of strength that, that want to, that know better and want to do better and need a leader that can gravitate this infrastructure of change right and it's intersectionality as well i feel like that's a huge thing within um black women leaders that actual term was coined by a black woman and she was i think it was probably the late 90s kimberly crenshaw uh coined intersectionality to describe how the feminist movement was so exclusive of everyone but white um middle class women and that just that mindset of we need to join everyone, we need to include everyone, is why it's, it's, it's why this would work. You know, it's why we're really out here trying to join everyone together for this, um, for this issue, to fight systemic racism, and intersectionality is going to be the way, because we do need numbers. Um, at the end of the day, we are global majority, but it's just been here for decades. We've, we've had these, um, I guess, infrastructure for decades. So the infrastructure is there. The black women have been doing the work. We're also the caregivers of the world, basically, because we're the caregivers of our family. We're the ones that are empathetic for everyone. We're super in tune to anything that happens that's a matter of any type of marginalized community, because mm-hmm. that is us. You know, we, we are seeing it. We're experiencing it. We're feeling it. We're mourning. So it's we know. We know exactly what's happening. Um, and this, this is no news for us. So it's like, okay, you've been experiencing this oppression your whole dang life you've been trying to fight this your whole life why not ask us why not let us like show you the way lead the way because we've been the way you know we've been the way because that's what we have born into um and it's just sad because it's everything is on yeah all the work we've just been doing the work and there's just no recognition of that and it's just yeah well, Shiana, hearing what Ogechi said, I mean, how does that make you feel? What are your thoughts about it? I think it's 100% true. Uh, and I think, I mean, you're the mothers and the sisters of the, put it this way, here where I live, um, when Kira, my older daughter, was in, she was in elementary school, one of her friends had an older brother, two years older. He couldn't have been, I think he was in sixth grade. And I was friends with the mom, Robin, so black executive here, said to me, you know, it's like, I have to have the talk. The talk with this boy who was in sixth grade. And I thought, you know, he was tall for his age and all. But I thought, it's like, I know, Laferne, you're raising beautiful son. And we talked about this recently, too. He's that's, running back and forth behind me. Yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, that's a universal thing in this country. I mean, Larry and I talked about it for his, you know, he had um, great grandchildren when he left grandchildren. Uh, it's 100% the way it is. It's the way it's always been. It's never been any different. It's just that there are people who didn't ever think about this. Uh, maybe a lot of middle white middle America never had that pers- never had an end to that perspective because we are basically but, still segregated. What I meant to say is the burden is on the mom, the women. Getting back to what you asked about women, you're you're the ones who have the sons who have the, you know the brothers. Yeah. It's the bur- that burden has the burden of I think has always fallen on the the women, the black women. Right. You know um, how to pay even a car when he gets his license. How to you know. Even if you've done nothing wrong, 
this is what you have oh. to do. Ladies, this has been a truly interesting conversation. And can we continue this? I know Shiana has an event to go to as well with her fabulous daughter who launched her first album. No, not her first album, but launched a new song. Mini. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that before we go? Oh, well, I, my daughters have continued the, uh, my husband and I make music. We've both been making music since we were kids basically. And now I'd say most of our effort musically goes to the, to the daughters, the new generation. So that's a lot of fun. Um, my older daughter's first two songs were written when she was like 13 well, at the election. Uh, one of them is called Revolution <laughs> because we were mourning here. And, you know, she, even at her young age, was so perceptive and basically was writing about how we're going to need a revolution, you know, personal as well as, you know. And the other one was called The Spoils and um, is about say you will, say you won't. But anyway, it's all about please say you won't go with them. It's written as poetry, but Aww. it's uh, it's also about the same thing. So they're they're also writing, you know, some personal songs, but okay. they feel deeply. Yeah. You know, they they have friends all across all the spectrums, and I think they're mm-hmm. at least raised in a more diverse, direct environment than I was in my in my town. I had a little, a fair amount, but I think the more we can raise kids together the more we see each other naturally as, you know, the human race, because that's what we are. <laughs> but the more kids, kids see, they ha- representation is so important. You can't have, mm-hmm. see white people, you know, on the majority of the, you know, on the shows and then expect young brown and black children to relate to that. You do have to see yourself yeah. represented. Yeah, that's a great point. And I feel like you also, Shiana, as a white mom, you have really taken up that responsibility. You don't understand what I'm saying. Um, Oh, no, I I, I don't want to do that about moms, but you you know what I'm saying? I do. That's work. That's so much work. Even just finding that media, finding those, you know, so that is really what I mean by like you leading by example and you leading and that's why your children are writing songs about revolution. Um, Mm -hmm. And that genuinity is really what what attracted me to your audition. Because I know I never... I forgot to answer that one, but you auditioned because we were actually choosing about to choose someone else, but everyone was like, she was authentic. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to call her back because that's that the authenticity was really, that was it. So that's, you just exude that. So Uh, I just want to answer that question real quick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Was destined to be for sure. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But I would be happy to continue this. I'm sorry to have to run, but oh no, no, it's great. Um, we could just, do a part two. <laughs> yes, part two. Yeah. Um, and you before you leave, can you let us know how people can be an ally for mm-hmm. uh, Black Lives Matter? Yeah, definitely. I think that if you if you do the research and you do the education, that's the first step. Um, but I think going outside of online, being offline, and helping lives that are alive, like literally supporting black lives today, right now, living and breathing. And those are all different kinds of ways. So if you know of an artist who is doing work as we're all doing, you know, trying to increase the representation, just because that's a huge part, everything, so many people are inspired by what they see um, and what they know. So I feel like telling more of those stories and supporting in that way is is great. And obviously there are so many petitions and donations. Um, you can go down that route. It's really looking at the people in your lives as well. Yes. Because yes. I think we're quick to help strangers. We're quick to do that performative act and feel okay. But taking that step to looking at someone in your life, even if it's a white person, like, let me tell you something. That's racist. That's a, that's an act of allyship. You know, <laughs> yes. even... Even that. So there's so many different ways. Like, don't just see it as one option. I think that's what's wrong for our society. It's like, this is the way to do it. No, cops are not the only way. You know, there's not only one option. And realizing that and um, just taking the time and dedication to look at all of your options, to listen and learn and educate yourself and amongst yourself as well. I love that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. And Shiana, I know you have to go. Thank you yeah. so much. We're going to yeah. continue Let's this conversation. Shiana <laughs> um, yeah. Lyons and Ogechi Musa. Ogechi Musa. Thank you guys so much. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay, you. Bye, bye, Shiana. Bye. I'm Laverne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. with Laferne Cusack, getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laferne Cusack on 710 ESPN.